Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. It's time for another Extra Dosage episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. Extra Dosage episodes are the in-between bits, special bonus content to get you through to the next full episode. One of the most popular and most listened to episodes of When Life Gives You Parkinson's is the first ever Extra Dosage, which featured a one-on-one chat between my neurologist and movement disorder specialist, Dr. Jonathan Squires, and me. Now, this is a new conversation with Dr. Squires one year later. We talk about my symptom progression, my medicine regimen, DBS, biomarkers, what a cure might look like, stem cells, stress, and a lot more. This chat took place immediately following my most recent six-month checkup. My wife, Rebecca, and I are in Dr. Squire's office at the University of British Columbia's Javid Mofagian Center for Brain Health. So we just had our six-month checkup. Correct. How am I doing? I would say that over the past six to 12 months, things have been relatively stable, though I do hear that you're having more struggles with several aspects of the condition. So from the from the um, motor symptom standpoint, it seems to not have changed much. Correct. Motor symptom-wise, things are pretty stable over the even over the past year, um, but you're struggling more with non-motor aspects of the condition. And from my standpoint, it feels like it's moving to both sides as opposed to just one side. Did you notice that? There is some slight effect. Yeah, the, you, the left side is slightly affected today, for sure. And what does that tell you? That tells me that things are progressing as we would expect for someone with a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So typically the textbook Parkinson's disease should start on one side of the body or the other and then over time will spread to involve the other side and if it doesn't spread to involve the other side then we have to reassess the diagnosis and as far as rate of progression with Larry Mm -hmm. since you've now known him for two years what do you observe initially I was a bit worried as we've talked about in the past that things were going relatively quickly i'm i'm a bit more reassured i think today seeing you the assessment today your med- medication had worn off already and your scores on the on the motor score was about the same as it was a year ago when you were on the medication so for me that's somewhat reassuring um i never want to discount the the, the daily struggles because i know even when things are going really well there are things every day that people struggle with that we take for granted. So I don't want to discount that in any way, but I am a little bit more reassured. Well, that reassures me because I feel worse than I did a year ago. But yeah. uh, but that, I think that's also like it compounds the, the longer you have it because it's, it's effortful. Yeah. 
and yeah, and like like you've noticed, many things that you that you that we take for granted during our day, like doing up the buttons on the shirt or mm-hmm. tying your shoes, it takes two or three times longer, and you spend a lot more energy doing these sort of mundane day to day tasks, and you have less left to do the things you really care about. And well, then you uh, wonder why you're so fatigued. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, not only that, but like at work, there's a lot of um, just sort of projects or like power powerpoints or spreadsheets that you work on, and I used to be able to really bang those out quickly, and now. Mm-hmm. I find it takes, I don't allocate enough time to do them because it takes me a lot longer to complete them than it used to. Right. And that's a fairly common scenario that people find themselves in. Um, and it, it is a bit, of, it's a constant adjustment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's it's almost like a some people sort of experience almost a continual mourning period as time goes on because mm-hmm. the, the progression is changing and there's all this stuff that either you can't do anymore that you had intended to do that seems more daunting than it had in the past and that can have it have a, a large psychological toll on people as well and things like that we don't we don't think of and don't talk about as right. much well and we've talked about and other folks who we know in the community have talked about quite a bit of that of that continuous that you're talking about where you kind of even out for a while and then and everybody kind of gets used to how that is and symptom management seems to be working well and then something else kind of comes in it could be a month later it could be 10 months later but something else will hit eventually yeah and and the unpredictability of it weighs heavy on many people i think Mm -hmm. as well it would be one thing if you could say well you have this terrible disease and you know this is how things are going to be in two years and five years Mm -hmm. that you can prepare for Mm -hmm. when you have this more nebulous concept like parkinson's disease Mm -hmm. where all we can say is well it's going to get worse but we can't tell you how fast and this is the long list of a thousand different symptoms you could have but you may not get any of them i think that's a lot harder for people to adapt to because it's you know you're you're sort of the blind leading the blind in a way and it's it's hard to well, and what we don't know is how long he had it before we even got a diagnosis or anything close that's, to a diagnosis. That's right. Right. Yeah. So he, you could be far like you could have had it since your early 30s. And so you're relatively far along. And so it would make sense that, that the progression is going faster. Right. But we don't know. Well, we, we do know that people with Parkinson's generally have at least we think we know that have had it for five or 10 or 15 years before you start having motor symptoms. And the holy grail in research right now is finding the test that's going to say, well, you, you know, you're in your 40s and you've got constipation. Is that just because you've got constipation or is that actually the first symptom of Parkinson's disease? Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you've lost your sense of smell or what what have you. And when we eventually find a cure for Parkinson's, that's the stage you want to give the cure, right? When it's early before you start having the mobility issues and the dexterity issues, is it, what a cure will look like is arresting progression. So you want to arrest progression before it, it's really affecting your life. Right. So that's interesting. So there's a lot of conversation mm-hmm. around the vocabulary we use, the, the terminology, the uh, lexicon mm-hmm. that is used with Parkinson's, because for a lot of people, cure is reversal of symptoms, like the removal of the disease from your body. Yes. And I think the holy grail right now is let's stop it in its tracks. Yes. Step Which one will be stopping a cure for Parkinson's really would be stopping progression because it is a condition where there's damage to the brain and so repairing the damage you're looking at more neurorestorative therapies things like stem cells which is which if you had a stem cell treatment that could reverse the progression it wouldn't necessarily cure the disease right? right so if you graft in stem cells that 
that take and take on some of the function, but if the disease process is still ongoing, those cells could and potentially would become affected by the disease. You just would turn the clock back somewhat, hmm. right? Um, some years back, someone did that study and they took fetal tissue and grafted it into the brain of people with Parkinson's disease. And after those people died, they did an autopsy and they did indeed find that the pathology had spread into the graft tissue. Hmm. Um, and so neurorestorative versus curative are related, but diff- not ex- not always the same thing. Mm-hmm. I would take what? that as a cure. Like, let's just stop it right that now. Would be, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. I, think be I, I don't know that there's a person with Parkinson's or a person who loves them that wouldn't take that. No. Right? No, and yeah. it's not perfect, but it would be right. a heck of a lot better than the inexorable progression. Well, so, and then a, coupled with that, earlier diagnosis. Correct. Being able to diagnose yeah. it five years, 10 years before the motor symptoms show up. Yeah. Right? So of all the research that you're exposed to, so I'm sure you're keeping up to date on all this, you're going to conferences around the world, you're famous, I'm sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, look, Flyers <laughs> isn't down. That's right. Uh, so uh, what, what, what are you excited about? So I'm excited about the research into the biomarkers. I think that, bef- I think that realistically, I think before we have great cure, I think we need a good biomarker. Um, part of the concern is that we might be dealing with Parkinson's disease may not be one monolithic entity, right? It, we might be looking at 20 different diseases or 50 different diseases. And until you have some test to tell them apart, there's no guarantee that a cure for one will cure them all. And so I think some of the genetic research that's being done is very exciting in that regard. If we can find a medication that will slow progression or stop progression for people with at least a known genetic subtype, then hopefully that will be applicable to other people. Mm -hmm. And then at least you can chip away that segment of people and then focus on the remainder. Right. So if you if you find the the way to stop the disease in LERC2, then you've 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 affected about seven to 10 percent of the people. And that's a start. That's a start. And you never know. There could be people without a LARC2 mutation who have LARC2 dysfunction for another reason. And Mm -hmm. the treatment for the genetic subtype may work for a subtype of the idiopathic Parkinson's population as well. At least that's the hope. Well, in episode four of this season of the podcast, we talked uh, about the biomarkers because, do you know Joy Milne, the woman who can smell Parkinson's? Yes, yeah, in the UK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I talked to her and then I talked to uh, Tilo Kunath uh, and Perdita about their, their their science behind it and how they're proving that there's the molecules. And, mm-hmm. and so they're hoping that the sebum swipe could could become a biomarker. Yeah. And that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. Non-invasive and very easy. Cheap. Cheap. Yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, there, but there's a lot of those biomarker studies going on. And I think that is probably the, one of the most exciting things right now, because yeah. that's, you know, once you've established how to diagnose it, then the cure probably comes a lot faster. That's right. And then you can, a lot of the studies looking at cures are looking at people with early Parkinson's as well. And if you if you know that a fairly substantial subtype of those people might not even have Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. If you have a treatment that's effective at slowing down the condition a little bit, you could lose the signal in in the noise. And if you had a way to separate out the different subtypes, that would be even better, mm-hmm. potentially, right? In the news recently, we've seen a lot of things about um, MS research 
and what was it uh, J.K. Rowling? Now she started the. She put in millions of dollars, and then they're saying that within ten years they're going to know a lot more about MS and that kind of thing. And I know they're always. It's always hyped to be, yeah. you know, to get headlines, mm-hmm. um, to capture attention. But um, is are you seeing in related disease like MS and Alzheimer's and whatnot where some of the research their research might benefit um, PD? Is are you seeing yeah. anything exciting there? Certainly, there could be the other neurodegenerative disorders. So. Alzheimer's disease, um, ALS, the research there could very, very well translate into Parkinson's disease. They're coming closer to a potentially a cure, at least a disease-modifying therapy for Huntington disease mm-hmm. as well, which would be very exciting. That's mm-hmm. in phase two, I think, studies right now. So that would be potentially Great. exciting. It's a bit different because it's a genetic disorder. It's one gene that's well relatively well understood what the mutation is, but even still, proof of concept-wise, if they can slow one neurodegenerative disease, it sort of at least might whet the appetite of the pharmaceutical industry to invest more money in it, mm-hmm. shall we say. Great. Yeah. I, I know in the U.S. they now have the inhaler for the levodopa. Yes. Is there any hope of that coming to Canada? I mean, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, Ritari was approved in the U.S., what, four years ago, five years ago now, and there's no sign of it here. Um I mean, none of these new medications are really game changers, I don't think, but it is nice to have more options in the armamentarium. Um, the inhaler could be nice for a subset of people, but it's really a, a rescue therapy, right, for people with severe off periods. Um, and so, I mean, we'll see. Canada is a bit slow with, and it also depends whether the company submits it for regulatory approval in Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you had mentioned that I haven't changed much over the last year. I'm, you Physically, I look good. You took two pages of notes about how I'm changing. <laughs> so, like, let's be honest here. It's not like if you if you just saw that without knowing who I was, it wouldn't look very good. Right. I mean, there's no question that there are symptoms that you're struggling with, for sure. Um, and we definitely need to chip away at those. I'm optimistic that we can improve things. So um, every six months you up my dose. Well, it's true. I have guilty. So, so where are we at now? We're we're at sort of a moderate moderate to high dose um, for someone who's had Parkinson's for the time that you have had, but you're entitled to need a higher dose than other people do. My mom is crying now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you made your mom cry. <laughs> I definitely don't need it's to, like need the to worst make cry, that's for sure. So, so, so I've, been, I've been at four doses a day, two and a half, two and a half, two and a half, and then two control release and one instant release. And now where are we going? We're going to four doses during the daytime, pulling them a little closer together, and then keeping the same one at bedtime and then an as-needed overnight. Yeah, so that's significant that's increase. A significant increase. Yep. Uh, and so when we talk about increasing levodopa to that level, we begin to start thinking about DBS. Now, where where should my head be as it, as it pertains to deep brain stimulation? It's definitely something that we need to think about, especially if I mean we use it for people who are having fluctuations and dyskinesias that we can't manage well with medication or people are having intolerable side effects to the medication at that dose. And so we hope with the deep brain stimulation, we can get away with less medication to, to help. People usually need to be on some level of medication anyway, despite DBS. Um, and we do need to think about it, especially here in British Columbia, because we have major resource limitations with respect to this one particular treatment. So I need to polish up my crystal ball 
and figure out when you're four or five years away from really needing it. And that's the time when we need to refer you. So, so we're going to see how this drug dosage goes to see if I improve. And if I don't, then in six months, we're going to start the process. That's right. So we'll put the referral in knowing that it could be three years or so before you're seen by the surgeon and then provided you're accepted for the surgery, then it would be another year or so after that. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully in that time span, there are some systemic changes that slash the wait time, but I'm a believer in preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Or there's a chocolate you could eat that would change your brain. (laughs) That would be ideal. That would be ideal. So, um, Larry, as we know, is a a little bit overweight and has high cholesterol historically. And so I'm curious as to, is he at higher risk for some of the potential problems that come from the DBS surgery? Well, anytime you have any other health issue, there increases the perioperative risk, certainly. For DBS right now, it's actually done under conscious sedation, so you don't have to worry at least about the risk of the general anesthetic, at least for the implantation part. I believe they still put you under for the actual burying of the wire under the skin because that's the really the unpleasant part of the already fainting procedure <laughs> um, but yeah it is it is something to be you know to consider mm-hmm. um, cert- no surgery is risk-free obviously and if you have other medical conditions associated then it does increase your risk mm-hmm. for you you're, you're still a young guy who's pretty healthy so I wouldn't think that your operative risk would be super high but Obviously, we, we, we encourage regular physical activity and weight loss and whatnot, but it's, uh, it, and it is an uphill battle, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not as easy as just saying, well, you know, I'm going to go exercise and I'll lose 50 pounds, right? But the dyskinesia sure. helps. Well, uh, so, since I've gotten dyskinesia, I've lost 10 pounds. Hey, exercise is exercise. <laughs> <laughs> what, what role does stress play in disease progression and symptom management? Disease progression, it's hard, really hard to know what kind of role stress is playing. We don't really have a great way to track disease progression, which is also a challenge in research. We use these sort of clinical endpoints and these clinical rating scales and some indirect imaging studies and whatnot to track progression, but we don't have a really great way of of measuring actual, like, how are things working in your brain? How are things actually progressing in your brain? So it's a really difficult question to answer in terms of progression. We do, however, see that anytime anyone is under stress, and that's true even if it's positive stress, that your symptoms will come out, particularly tremor. Any kind of adrenaline, stress hormones will drive tremor. And then all, we, we, and we recognize it for symptoms across the gamut. So freezing, sleep disruption, dyskinesia, dyskinesia, anything you want to talk about, if you're under any kind of stress, it's going to bring out your symptoms. So if you can figure out how to eliminate all stress from your life, (laughs) write a book and you'll be able to... I know, whoever figures that out, right? (laughs) I was going to say, write me a doctor's note, but can you write me a check? (laughs) I wish. (laughs) That would free me up for stress. (laughs) Uh, Well, because stress causes inflammation. Indeed. And inflammation is, they're looking at it as a major disrupt, a major cause of Parkinson's. Yeah, that's right. There's certainly neuroinflammation present. Um, you know, it's still chicken and egg. Do, do you have Parkinson's disease, which causes mm-hmm. breakdown, which triggers an inflammatory response, or is the inflammation the primary problem? Um, but n- nevertheless, it's certainly not going to help progression. 
Well, that's a lot to digest. More pills for Larry. Now I'm taking up to 18 Carbidopa Levodopa per day, plus a sedative, antidepressant, dopamine blocker, aspirin, statin, vitamins D3 and B complex, a laxative, magnesium glycinate, and probiotics. In all, 29 or so pills of stuff each day, more than 200 per week. For a guy that, until I was diagnosed, didn't take any medicine at all. Additionally, I I need to manage stress, work-life balance, exercise, my travel schedule, my energy, and hopefully, in the next six months, my mild dyskinesia gets under control, or I'll be queuing up for DBS surgery in six months' time, and then wait and wait and wait. That's your extra dosage. Coming up on the next episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's, what exactly is DBS surgery and how does it work? How are you feeling about the uh, DBS surgery in a few weeks? After eight years, for me personally, I'm not afraid of the surgery anymore. And kind of a bit nervous. So being switched on is just, um, well, it's, 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 I can describe it. Amazing. What's the, uh, the one thing that you're really happy that you can do now that you couldn't do before? Be there when kids need me every time. This is George's five, so George's got a new dad, haven't you, George? You did, Daddy. You did it. The always been there for me, but I could play less and less and less up until the point of my surgery. But now it's opened my, it's just opened my creativity. It's blown up wide open because then I can just play for longer. DBS was on our radar almost as soon as Jim was diagnosed. My name is James Smurden. He was heroic about it. He was flirting with the nurses when he went into the <laughs> surgery, and he was flirting with the nurses when he came back out. So, <laughs> what did you hear when they drilled a hole in your brain? You hear everything. I think you know. Yeah, some people look at Jim and they see his Parkinson's advancing and his symptoms, and they say, "Gee, that's too bad. The DBS didn't work." Um, <laughs> it did. Yeah. Right. It did work. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the things that you get to do? I can drive. I work. I live my life. How's life? <laughs> when Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast podcast. Our presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, parkinson.ca. If you'd like to help spread the word, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free to this podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at curiouscast.ca. Please engage with us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just look up at Parkinson's Pod or email us parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard here today, plus links to our supporting partners. This episode of When Life Gives You Parkinson's was written and hosted by me, Larry Gifford, and Rebecca Gifford. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. Keep positive, keep exercising, keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.